Okay, uh, so we, the last time we went over these things as well, but uh, we'll just go ahead and go through them again. Some of the facts about what we know with VO2 max. There is wide variability in individual response to aerobic exercise training, which means that if you put two individuals on a similar training program, their overall change in their aerobic capacity as measured by VO2 max would be very different. Based on the available literature, uh, given response to an aerobic training intervention, typically individuals see anywhere from no improvement up to a 50% improvement in aerobic capacity. There is uh, some evidence to suggest uh, the degree of change may be predicted by uh, one's genotype. And again, you'll keep in mind that there's a lot of things that go into determining the response. Genotype is certainly part of the equation, but uh, the environmental factors are also equally important. The percent improvement that you'll see following an aerobic training intervention, or percent improvement in VO2max, is largely dependent on the initial training status prior to starting the program. Basically meaning that if you took, if you had somebody that was already aerobic exercise trained and somebody that was completely untrained and you put them on the same program, the individual that was untrained would have a greater percent increase in aerobic fitness because they were further away from their programmed VO2 max as opposed to the trained individual who may be very close to their VO2 max. So essentially, just the sole difference that there is a larger gap between where they're at and where they are capable of going, that translates to there being a difference in the percentage of improvement. The, so those are some of the basic tenets of the VO2 max and just a few more things associated with it is one, and what we'll do is we'll list, I'll list all these different factors off and then we'll go through and look at each one in more detail. Certainly fiber type has dramatic influences on VO2 max. Uh, since VO2 max is a measure of aerobic fitness, it's essentially a measure of oxidative capacity. And the more slow twitch fibers you have or the more intermediate fibers you have that are slow in nature, the greater your VO2 max will tend to be. A second factor influencing VO2 max is capillary supply. So certainly to make energy via aerobic means, you have to have oxygen to do that. And the more capillaries you have feeding the muscle, the more oxygen that muscle can supp be supplied and the more oxygen it can potentially utilize. A third factor is myoglobin content. Uh, we've talked a little bit and certainly when we get to uh, the cardiovascular system, we'll talk about it more. But in your blood, you have a molecule called hemoglobin, which carries uh, oxygen in your blood. And in the muscle, you have myoglobin, which holds oxygen in the muscle. And the more myoglobin the muscle cell has, the more oxygen it can hold, and thus the higher your VO2 max will be. A fourth factor is the relative contribution or relative concentration of mitochondrial enzymes and specifically the ones that are associated with oxidative means. And usually the easiest thing to look at is the enzymes that would be found in the mitochondria. So the enzymes associated with the TCA cycle and uh, the electron transport chain, and to a lesser extent, beta oxidation. All right, so if we look at each of these in a bit more detail, starting with fiber type, 
Um, based on what we talked about previously with uh, adaptations to resistance exercise and strength training or anaerobic training, we pretty much know that aerobic training selectively targets slow twitch muscle fibers. And for the most part, it causes little or no change in fast twitch muscle fibers because uh, fast twitch muscle fibers have a very different stimulus associated with them. And the nature of the training that you would do if you were doing aerobic training is very different than if you were doing anaerobic training. So for instance, if you're doing aerobic training, you may go out and run a mile or you may go run for 60 to 90 minutes at some percentage of your maximal effort. And if you're doing anaerobic training, you may go run 10 or 12 60 second sprints or something along those lines. So the stimulus is very different. The key effects that you get is namely via aerobic training, you enhance the oxidative capacity of the slow twitch fibers you already have, and you shift the intermediate fibers so that they're more oxidative in nature. So you enhance what you have, and then you basically, in more or less words, increase more of those fibers by altering the intermediate fibers. Also with aerobic training, you, could, you can see about or up to about a 25% increase in muscle cross-sectional area. So certainly if you're doing a massive amount of aerobic training and you're getting a, a pretty good stimulus to increase the number of mitochondria or the amount of myoglobin, you've got to have somewhere to put that. And so you will have some increase in muscle cross-sectional area to account for those changes. Now certainly the, the increase in muscle cross-sectional area is nowhere near what you get with uh, resistance training, but you do get some slight increases. In addition to fiber type, the next factor to look at is capillary supply. And under capillary supply, after about a month or two of training, you can have about a 15% increase in uh, capillary supply to skeletal muscle. And if you look at a, a mix of fibers within the muscle cell, you're primarily going to see capillaries developing around the slow twitch fibers or the intermediate fibers which are developing slow twitch type properties. And the key to the increase in capillary density or ca capillary supply is that you're able to circulate more blood to the muscle, you're able to circulate more oxygen to the muscle, glucose, take away carbon dioxide, and in doing so, you're able to increase the oxidative capacity of the muscle just by providing it more, more material to work with and removing the things that it does not need. So again, gas exchange is increased and gas exchange of O2 and CO2. A second factor is heat removal. And while some amount of increase in body temperature is good for accelerating the rate of enzymatic reactions. Excessive increases in body temperature are not good, so the blood represents a means to dissipate that heat that's being formed. Keep in mind that your body's process of converting or extracting the energy from the glucose molecule in particular is only about 20 to 25% efficient. That means that only about 20 to 25% of the energy that's in glucose gets converted to ATP. Everything else gets lost as heat, and your body has to have something to do with that.
A third factor is waste removal, and primarily what we're talking about is the removal of the byproducts associated with metabolic processes. And uh, for the most part, if you're metabolizing glucose correctly, the only waste product you should have at the end is water, which isn't really a waste product at all. But you can also generate lactic acid depending on how the rate of the system is running relative to glycolysis. So that's something that you would need to remove. And while lactic acid isn't really a waste product because it can be used by other cells of the body, it is a waste product for the skeletal muscle. The skeletal muscle doesn't really have anything else it can do with that. A fourth factor is to maintain the nutrient supply to the muscle. And if we're talking about aerobic type of exercise, the primary nutrients that we're trying to maintain to the muscle are glucose and fatty acids. This uh, picture on the left uh, is a cross-section of skeletal muscle prior to training. And uh, there are some little circles that are hard to see, but um, I went ahead and put some orange circles over them. And these were the presence of um, capillaries, cross-sections of capillaries prior to training. They took this individual through a three or more four-month aerobic training intervention took another muscle biopsy, sectioned it, and again looked for capillaries. And this is taken at the same magnification. The thing that you see immediately, if you just look at the relative size of the muscle fibers, there is definitely an increase in muscle fiber size, probably about a 25% increase or so. The other thing that there's an increase in is the number of capillaries that are in this muscle cell. So again, if you add uh, some green spots to illustrate where those are, you can see there's significantly more capillaries um, after training than there was before training. And again, those capillaries are going to do things like make sure you have enough oxygen, remove the CO2 that's being formed, provide glucose and fatty acids, remove uh, waste byproducts, and remove the heat that's being generated. All right, so we've got fiber type, we've got capillary supply. The next thing is uh, myoglobin content. And myoglobin is essentially the substance which binds O2 in the muscle cell. And the more myoglobin you have, the more oxygen the muscle cell can bind. There's a lot of ways to characterize what type of muscle fibers you're looking at, but under the microscope, one way to classify muscle cells is looking for myoglobin content. And myoglobin is always going to have a red color to it because one of the central components of myoglobin is uh, an iron group, and iron has a red tinge to it. So that's what gives the muscle its red color. Long-term aerobic training can increase myoglobin as much as 75 to 80% of pre-training values. And the percent of increase that you expect is, again, largely dependent on the initial training status. So someone that's not very well trained, they probably are going to have substantial increases in myoglobin content. So what do, you mean, what do I mean when I say long-term training? Um, so I'm not talking about like three weeks over at the gym, three weeks of running. Long-term training refers to maybe 10 or 12 months of aerobic exercise training. Yeah. Uh, it, it depends. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of literature out there as to what the appropriate volume of training would be to elicit these kinds of changes. But in general, um, usually the stimulus is something along the lines of 
most days of the week for at least an hour per session. Um, and that's pretty consistent with uh, the basic guidelines for exercise in healthy individuals right now. And most days of the week essentially means five of seven days. And uh, the thing you'll see is if you did less exercise per week than that, you could eventually increase your myoglobin to the same levels. It would just take a lot longer to get there. So there's a fine line between providing enough stimulus to elicit these kind of changes and providing too much stimulus so that you get into uh, a condition where you're either overreaching or overtraining. The fourth factor contributing to uh, overall changes in VO2 max is uh, related to mitochondrial function. And essentially these changes as they relate to function, they result in an increase in the oxidative capacity of individual mitochondria. Uh, the, the thing that's kind of unique about the way the cell is set up, uh, at least if you've had a, a biology class, they've probably taught you that all the genetic material is in the nucleus, and that's what tells the cell what it needs to make. And the mitochondria is a unique kind of structure because the mitochondria actually has its own set of, of DNA. And that DNA encodes for all the enzymes and proteins that are associated with the TCA cycle, beta oxidation, and the electron transport chain. The, uh, that's kind of a good and a bad thing. The good thing is that since the, the DNA is right there, if you want to make more of those things, it can do that pretty rapidly because the DNA is right there where it needs to be made. The bad thing is that since that DNA is not in the nucleus, it's not as well protected as if it were in the nucleus. And that means it's much more susceptible to damage. Damage via byproducts of oxidative metabolism or damage via some other form of external radiation. The key anatomical locations for the adaptations in mitochondrial function are obviously slow twitch muscle fibers. So again, via training, the, the purpose of aerobic exercise training is to enhance the capacity of the aerobic or slow twitch fibers that you already have. The second site of adaptation is always going to be the intermediate fibers, and that's where you get really your, your major increase in training responses. The other thing that, um, the other term that's thrown around quite a bit when you look at aerobic training adaptations and other type of adaptations is uh, essentially how trainable a person is in terms of their energy systems. And individuals who tend to have high concentrations of intermediate fibers, they tend to be very trainable, meaning that they experience large increases in a, in a pretty rapid manner uh, within um, metabolic pathways. And that occurs because they have a large amount of cells which are capable of adapting to a different kind of stimulus in a rapid manner. If we had somebody do four or five months of aerobic training at about the stimulus I suggested, which is somewhere between three and five sessions per week, about an hour per session, at about 60 to 80 percent of your maximal effort, you would expect to see about a 15% increase in mitochondrial number. You would also see about a 35% increase in mitochondrial size. 
So you would essentially have an increase in the quantity of mitochondria you have and an increase in the size of the existing mitochondria. The increase in size is particularly important because that means each mitochondria can hold more components of the TCA cycle and more components of the electron transport chain, both of which uh, dictate towards uh, a tendency to be able to produce more ATP via oxidative means. A third change that you see uh, that goes right along with changes in um, mitochondrial size is there's typically about a 25% increase in the quantity of enzymes associated with the TCA cycle. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. Uh, essentially, if you remove the stimulus, the body uh, decides that it's no longer useful to maintain that structure, and it will initiate the breakdown of those kinds of structures and the decrease in size. And depending on what you, um, depending on which fibers you're talking about, you're going to see changes in both the slow and the intermediate. But one of the reasons you see such dramatic declines in aerobic fitness during detraining is the intermediate fibers lose the adaptation very quickly. And if they're not provided a stimulus, they would prefer to exist as fast twitch type of fibers. So by their nature, if they're not being provided an aerobic training stimulus, they're going to try to act like fast twitch type of fibers, which is effectively means if you stop training and you had a large quantity of those intermediate fibers you trained, you're gonna lose your adaptation very quickly. Okay, so that's a little bit about VO2 max and some of the factors which determine its change in response to training. The uh, next thing we're going to talk a little bit about is how training influences macronutrient utilization. And keep in mind, really the two key macronutrients that we're interested in are fatty acids and carbohydrates. One of the hallmark signs of aerobic training in addition to changes in VO2 max, is there's a change in the capacity of the muscle cells to store glycogen. Basically meaning the muscle cells can store more glycogen. That's really important because in order for the oxidative energy systems to operate at peak efficiency, you have to have muscle glycogen as the key source for ATP production. If you use anything else but muscle glycogen, the rate at which you make ATP will be dramatically less, and essentially that will dictate how, how, how hard you can exercise or how high of an intensity you can exercise at. Because uh, say that you're running on the treadmill at 10 miles an hour, your aerobic system's going along, it's providing ATP at the same rate that it's being used, and then all of a sudden you run out of glycogen, your body shifts to fatty acids, you're making ATP a lot slower, and since you're making ATP a lot slower, you have no choice but to slow down the rate that you're running at. So in order to maintain a high rate of exercise, then it's important to have good muscle glycogen stores. For the individual who's just recreationally active and is just doing some aerobic activity to stay healthy, it's probably not a big deal. For a competitive athlete, big deal. Uh, for a competitive marathon runner, very big deal. So uh, for a competitive marathon runner, that's very bad if they are three miles from the finish line and they run out of muscle glycogen. 
because pretty much they're going to be lucky to get about three minutes out of their anaerobic energy systems, maintaining that intensity, and then they're going to have to start slowing down. And in terms of performance, slowing down was not obviously the ideal thing that they were looking to do. The second effect that you get during or in response to aerobic training is you get an increase in intramuscular triglyceride stores. So essentially the muscle cells uh, store more fatty acid or triglyceride globules inside the muscle cell or in between muscle cells. And that's a pretty significant adaptation because uh, as we'll look at a little bit later on, uh, in response to aerobic training, the crossover point of which you use carbohydrate and fat tends to shift to the right, which means after training, you can use fatty acids at a higher intensity of exercise. Well, the only way to effectively do that is you have to have a lot of fatty acids at the immediate disposal of the muscle cell. So by storing triglycerides inside the muscle cell or in close proximity to the muscle cell, when you need those fatty acids to make ATP, they're right there. You just break them down the same way you'd break them down from adipose tissue, and then you can metabolize them. And then at the same time, you're going to break down adipose tissue and release those fatty acids, and then those fatty acids will pick up once the intramuscular stores are gone. So it's a completely beneficial adaptation in that case for um, essentially through aerobic training to increase your intramuscular triglyceride stores. The... Uh, Obviously, for exercising humans, this is a really beneficial adaptation, but in terms of if you're looking at other kinds of industries, the accumulation of intramuscular triglycerides is not always a beneficial thing. So, for instance, uh, at least in this country, the way they, in, on farms, the way they raise cattle for beef production, they tend to not let them move around very much. And the reason they don't want them moving around very much is they don't want them doing aerobic training. They don't want them... Do, running around a whole bunch because that's going to cause the accumulation of uh, triglycerides in the muscle, which is going to in turn affect the quality of the product that they're trying to produce. The, in addition, like I said, in addition to more triglycerides stored in the muscle, there is also an increase in triglyceride breakdown and release to the blood. And this triglyceride breakdown is occurring in the adipose tissue mass. And for the most part, the stimulus for this uh, increased breakdown is dictated by the shifting of the crossover point and the fact that the muscle is demanding fatty acids when it previously demanded carbohydrates. And those are all beneficial things to uh, an aerobic athlete because the longer that you can use fatty acids, the more you can spare muscle glycogen. Uh, even a lean individual can usually produce about 75,000 kilocalories of ATP via fatty acid stores. And in comparison, if you were fully loaded with muscle glycogen, you'd be lucky to be able to generate about 2,500 calories. Uh, certainly, if you're running a competitive marathon, that uh, 2,500 kilocalories is probably not going to be enough to get you to the finish line in, in an appropriate time that you're looking to hit. So the only way you're going to get there is by loading up on glycogen and using the muscle triglyceride stores and using the adipose triglyceride stores to spare the muscle glycogen that you have.
So the, the final piece is, I've already said this a couple times, is that the, the final piece is you want to also alter the way that the muscle uses fatty acids. And that alteration in the way that it uses fatty acids alters the crossover point. And we'll look at how that response works in just a moment. So there's any, any questions about the changes in macronutrient utilization? Anybody awake? No. Okay. All right. Uh, so to get an idea where these uh, different things might be located, uh, this is an electron myograph of uh, some skeletal muscle, an individual skeletal muscle cell. And there's a couple things that you can see on here. Uh, one is this structure right up here in the top is the mitochondria. Um, and on the screen, you may look at that and say, I don't even see anything there. But uh, if you look at this closer up, you can actually see the folds of the mitochondria. That's how I knew that's what it was. The next structure that you see is all the little black spots in this area where I'm pointing to. And those are glycogen. The uh, structures down here, the smaller spots, those are triglycerides that are being stored. And so for the most part, the, gly the glycogen and the triglycerides are stored in very close proximity to one another. If you had to guess uh, where their location is relative to contractile units and relative to mitochondria, obviously, as you can see on this diagram, these things are located in close proximity to the mitochondria because that's most likely the final destination for their metabolism. The glycogen is going to get processed a little bit by, by glycolysis, but the majority of the work is done in the mitochondria. The triglycerides, all the work's done in the mitochondria. There's no action in the cytosol whatsoever. All right, so I mentioned, uh, at least in words, how training influences the crossover effect, but I think it'd be useful to look at a diagram, too. We've talked about this before. And on this graph, we have percent utilization on the y-axis, and we have percentage of maximal effort on the x-axis, and essentially 40, 60, 80, 100 percent. 40 to 60 percent would be what we considered low-intensity exercise, 60 to 80 percent being moderate-intensity exercise, and 80 to 100 percent being severe exercise. And this is effectively the response that we talked about before. So when you start exercising and the intensity is low, then uh, you tend to use mostly fats to make ATP and a little bit of carbohydrate in there. And then as the intensity increases, you eventually have to switch or cross over and use more carbohydrate than fats. And the percentage of effort that occurs at is usually somewhere between 40 and 60% of maximal effort. Effectively, after training, this is the kind of adaptation you might see. Uh, maybe it wouldn't be this pronounced, but you would see something along these lines. Where now, the way I've drawn this, this individual can effectively exercise to around 80% of their maximal effort using only fatty acids to make ATP. And then once they exceeded 80% of maximal effort, then they would have to turn and use carbohydrates to make ATP. And the bottom line is if you had two individuals that, and that you knew that about them going into a race, they're both of similar training status, but one individual's crossover point was at 80% and the other individual's was at 60%, 
I can almost guarantee you that the person who had the crossover point at 80%, they will run a faster time almost every time. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into performance, but this is certainly a, pr a pretty powerful factor that contributes to performance. So any questions about what's going on here? So the key is it's always going to be a rightward shift with training. Now, just as training causes a rightward shift, if you were to stop training, you would effectively shift this back to the left. So any adaptations you get in response to training, if you stop training, those adaptations will be removed. So I think I've kind of alluded to what some of the, co the causes of the shift in the crossover point would be, but uh, I'll just go ahead and outline them now. One of the key stimulus for this change is a decrease in sympathetic nervous system activation, which tends to occur with aerobic exercise training. The sympathetic nervous system, just to refresh you, that's part of the autonomic or automatic nervous system, meaning it's out of your conscious control. And it's the system that gets activated when you start exercising. It's the system that causes an increase in your heart rate, an increase in your breathing, and an increase in metabolic rate. And uh, essentially what happens is if you take somebody who's never trained and you have them exercise, this system goes crazy when the person starts exercising, trying to compensate for the effect of exercise. But as the person becomes more used to that stimulus, there's essentially a reduction in the activation of this system. And that reduction means that at a given intensity of exercise, you'd expect the heart rate to be less, you would expect the breathing rate to be less, and you'd expect uh, potentially the oxygen consumption to be less. And that essentially is a signal that uh, the individual is becoming more trained. And when you reduce this uh, sympathetic nervous system activation, it causes some decreases as well. The primary thing that it elicits is a decrease in the rate of glycogen breakdown. And this, this response is one of the key stimuli for that breakdown. So you decrease the rate of glycogen breakdown, which means that you're using less glycogen to make ATP. You also decrease the rate of glycogen metabolism, meaning that you, de you decrease the rate at which glycogen is being reformed. And reformation is essentially that first step, so it's glucose, hexokinase, and then the glycogen. Oops. And essentially, once you alter glycogen metabolism and the ability to make ATP from glycogen, that's going to force the body to rely on something else to make ATP. And the only something else that it has is fatty acids. And as you force the body to rely on fatty acids, then you will stimulate uh, the cell to adapt, adapt itself to store triglycerides in the, in the muscle and to increase the machinery, i.e. beta oxidation, that's needed to process those fatty acids. So, any questions about what's going on here? So that's, uh, that's a little bit about what aerobic training does. Uh, the next part would be what the basic components of an aerobic training program are. And the first is the volume of training. The second is the intensity of training. 
and a third is the type of training. Uh, and essentially what this indicates it refers to is either interval or continuous training. And I'm listing these all off right now, and then just a moment I'll go through each of them in a bit more detail. So interval, so we got volume of training, essentially how much you're doing, the intensity of training, how hard those sessions are you're doing, the type of training stimulus, interval or continuous. And so we go through those now, and we look at volume intensity issues first. Uh, in general, it's, it's really difficult when you look at aerobic training adaptations to talk about what you should do in terms of how the exercise session should be, how long it should be, what intensity it should be. And one thing that exercise physiologists have found is that one of the easiest ways to talk about adaptations or a training program is to talk about what kind of caloric uh, deficit you're trying to create. And in most cases, if you elicit, uh, if you do a training program that elicits uh, five to 6,000 kilocalorie of caloric expenditure per week, you're pretty much gonna maximize any aerobic adaptations you're capable of achieving. So to put that in perspective, um, five to 6,000 calories, that's gonna be about 50 to 60 miles of running per week. Uh, about 4,300 to 6,500 yards of swimming. Um, so for those of you that are familiar with a pool, uh, Olympic lap pool, I think it's 50 yards for each length. So that's a lot of lengths of the pool. And uh, I, I didn't do the, the actual amount of um, cycling mileage, but it would be a lot of, a lot of cycling mileage as well. So the, the key is that to elicit that kind of caloric response, you have to do a lot of exercise. Now, some of you may be sitting out there and saying, hey, I work out at the gym, and that when I get done with my exercise, that machine tells me I've burned 1,000 calories. It's lying to you. Uh, the machine has a, a formula built into it, and essentially it's calculating about what your caloric expenditure would be based on your heart rate and, well, usually your heart rate and your age and your gender. And it just has an equation that it puts those numbers into, and it spits out a a number based on how hard you're working. And in general, based on what laboratory tests have showed, those numbers are usually off by anywhere from 25 to 40% or more. Um, so, and like to show, just to prove to you that the age factor makes an effect, you can go and uh, you, the ones that ask you for your age, you can put in your age as uh, more, like double what it is, and it'll tell you you're using less calories for the same exercise intensity. So those are, at most are a, a best guess or a best estimate, but there's certainly better ways to equate uh, energy expenditure. Individuals who do this kind of research that study training this way, one of the easiest ways to quantify the caloric expenditure, well, one of the ways to quantify it, not the easiest way per se, is uh, they actually make portable metabolic carts that you can wear. And they're about, uh, the sensor module is usually about the size of a small phone book and then there's a mask you wear over your face while you're exercising. And that measures in a breath-by-breath -breath manner oxygen consumption, which you can directly relate back to caloric expenditure. Obviously, if you don't want to do that, uh, the next best way to do would be to use something like uh, a three-axis or two-axis accelerometer. Um, there's actually uh, there's a couple of people here in computer science that have developed some really um, unique ways to uh, utilize the two-axis accelerometer that's in some, like the iPhone in particular, and use that as a means to track potentially uh, caloric expenditure. So 
there's lots of ways that you can you can use different types of tools like that to quantify caloric expenditure. Oh, I'm sorry, per day. Yeah, per day. Um, you know, keep in mind these are numbers if you want to maximize your adaptation. Most individuals that rec are exercise recreationally are not trying to necessarily maximize their adaptation. They're just trying to get an adaptation. So certainly anything that you do, you're going to get uh, some adaptation from. It's just a matter of how much you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah, or crazy. Um, yeah, so, and there's, uh, there's a lot of extreme athletes that do crazy amounts of training. Um, there's a, another PhD student that worked with me while I was getting my PhD, and she was a triathlete. And she would get up in the morning and run eight miles before she came to work. She, during her lunch break, she would go swim 4,000 yards in the pool. And then at the end of the day, she'd go ride like 30, 40 kilometers. So um, there are people that do at least that volume of training. Most people that train to run ultra Ironmans, they can do some of. Sometimes they'll do training sessions where they'll run 50 miles in one session without much problem. So ultra or double iron or double uh, marathon is essentially a 52 mile road race. Uh, there's lots of places you can go do those around the way, but that requires some extreme amounts of training. Um, actually, one of the undergrad students used to work with me in the lab. He, um, he all the time would run. He lived somewhere by uh, Rice University. He'd all the time on the weekends run from Rice to Galveston. Oh, yeah. So, um, and I didn't, I didn't believe him and actually uh, had him wear uh, an accelerometer and, yeah, I mean, Yep, you just ran from, okay, all right. So um, the, the key to picking the intensity of exercise is the intensity of exercise really needs to be matched to the volume of exercise. So if you're doing a high volume of exercise, you're probably not going to do a very high intensity. But if you're doing a low volume of exercise, you probably want it to be at a higher intensity. In general, the best place to set the exercise intensity is at or slightly below the uh, lactate threshold. And essentially, if you set it at or slightly below the lactate threshold, that's going to tell you that you're maximizing the benefits to the aerobic system while not training the anaerobic system. Essentially, within that, there's two approaches, and these are the, what I just suggested. So high intensity, low volume and low intensity, high volume. The reality is the literature tells us that it doesn't matter which one you do, you get the same adaptation if you have the same caloric expenditure. So anytime you wanna compare, uh, in this case, apples to apples, you would wanna make sure that the two training programs have a similar caloric expenditure. In general, what you find is most people that do aerobic training, just even recreationally, they usually select whether they believe it or whether they know it or not to do high intensity, shorter duration. And uh, believe it or not, 60 minutes of exercise at 60 to 80 percent of your max is short duration, high, higher intensity. Uh, if you're talking about doing long duration, lower intensity, you'd probably be talking about doing a three or four hour exercise session at 40 or 60 percent of your max.
The big problem with aerobic training and in particular aerobically trained athletes is uh, that of excessive training. And uh, we see a lot of people come in the lab that are very addicted to exercise and um, they do a little bit and they get an effect. So they say, oh, well, I'll do a little bit more and they get more of an effect. And then they do more and get more of an effect. And they get to the point where they're doing so, so high amounts of exercise that they end up getting no effects. And that happens when you get into some conditions with excessive training. Uh, in terms of aerobic adaptation, uh, two-a-day type of workouts really don't do any good. So doing two aerobic sessions in the same day really doesn't really do a whole lot of good for you. Um, there's really, the evidence doesn't suggest that it, it significantly enhances aerobic adaptations. Uh, that's not to say, depending on the sport, that a two-a-day type of practice isn't beneficial. It's just not beneficial to aerobic adaptations. The other slight problem with excessive training is um, whenever we have, uh, especially some of the triathletes come in, they always want to know if they're training too much. And it'd be wonderful if there was one thing that we can measure and that would just tell us but it doesn't work that way. There's actually about, uh, I think the last time I looked, about 100 different variables that predict overtraining. And if you want to be really accurate, you probably need to measure at least 60 of them. And what you'll find is some of them will say the individual's overtrained and some of them will say the individual's not overtrained. And then you just essentially measure them all and you say, okay, well, 40 of them say they're overtrained, 20 of them say they're not, they must be overtrained or they might be overtrained. So it's not really an exact science. Um, some of the common symptoms, though, that people report with excessive training is they, uh, they'll report that their exercise sessions don't feel right uh, or they don't feel like they're beneficial. Uh, that's the, uh, the feeling of staleness. So the, um, essentially something doesn't feel right about the exercise. Uh, an elevated resting morning heart rate is a pretty good indication of overtraining, although not always and some changes in the relative contribution or relative concentration of white blood cells in the bloodstream. Also an increased incidence of infection is a pretty good symptom that an individual is overtrained because overtraining does suppress the immune system and can make you more susceptible to illness. The key uh, to the over excessive training responses is that the excessive or extra volume doesn't really translate to an improvement in performance. If anything, it'll translate to a decrement in performance. And uh, I think of, of all the papers that have been published, the sport that most commonly is prone to overtraining is usually swimmers. And in particular, um, most swim coaches, they have, a, they have it in their mind how many yards that an individual should train per week and everybody does that amount of training. And uh, there's been a lot of studies done that have shown that if you take the volume a traditional uh, swimmer or, or professional swimmer does in a training session and you cut it in half, you get the same adaptation as the volume they were doing, which essentially suggests that the volume they were doing was uh, excessive and unnecessary. But uh, again, that's, it's important just to clearly define what the objectives are and that's why it's important to track productivity or um, the changes that are occurring in response to the training program.
And this graph is just meant to demonstrate the relationship between training and uh, changes in the aerobic system. And on the y-axis, there's a percentage of increase. And on the x-axis, we have some different training volumes. So 5,000 calories per week, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000. And what you see is in most individuals, you're going to get a maximal adaptation in terms of VO2 and in terms of performance time somewhere around an expenditure of around 6,000 calories, five to 6,000 calories. Then when you exceed that level, you really don't get any change in VO2 max. And if anything, you get a reduction in perform or a reduction, an increase in performance time would actually be a reduction in performance. But bottom line is you don't perform as well. You can't, whatever your vintage, you don't run as fast. And that's because there's a lot of other factors that contribute to performance and certainly Poor exercise sessions can affect the psychological state of the individual, which may affect their response to exercise. All right, so uh, looking a little bit more at the types of training, uh, looking at interval training. The last time we talked about interval training, we mostly talked about how it could be used to increase anaerobic capacity. And to some extent, there are ways you can complete what are referred to as aerobic interval training. And pretty much what we know about the literature is that aerobic interval training, continuous training, have very similar effects. And if, in fact, if you match the caloric expenditure between the two types of stimuli, the adaptations are almost exactly the same. There's really not a whole lot of difference. So what does an aerobic interval look like that an uh, anaerobic interval did not? What you'll find with uh, the traditional design of an aerobic interval training is that uh, typically it's a shorter duration activity and uh, essentially somewhere in the half a minute to five minute range. And then the intensity is set essentially so that it's right at the crossover point. And it's important that the intensity be near the crossover point because then you know you're only activating the aerobic energy systems. If you said, I'm going to do five minutes as hard as I can, that's going to be an anaerobic interval, and that's not what you want to achieve. After each interval, you would then have a brief recovery period of about 5 to 15 seconds. And then you would repeat these short exercise sessions uh, anywhere from 20, 30, 20 to 30 times to achieve the target volume. And again, the target volume is based on kilocalorie expenditure. And typically, if you did the five-minute sessions, um, essentially if you did 20 of those, that would be 100 minutes right there. Plus, uh, you would have uh, some additional time in between. And basically what that means is that translates to a lot of time for not really getting a lot of benefit because you could do 60 minutes of exercise continuous and elicit the same caloric expenditure and you would get the exact same change in aerobic capacity. So while these intervals are effective at increasing aerobic capacity, there's really no benefit above that that you see with um, continuous training. The other thing is if you're not careful, it is really easy to increase the intensity too much. 
So the tendency when you tell somebody they're going to only exercise for five minutes is they try to exercise as hard as they can for five minutes. And that's not what you want to be doing. Uh, if you exercise as hard as you could for five minutes, that's actually probably going to uh, adapt the anaerobic system, which is not what you're trying to achieve. So how does that compare to continuous training? Uh, interestingly, when you compare aerobic and interval training, or continuous and interval training, there's really not a lot of difference in uh, the maximal oxidative capacity that's achieved. And that's because caloric expenditure is caloric expenditure. If you, it doesn't really matter so much how you get to that caloric expenditure, it's just that you get to that caloric expenditure. The design for a continuous training could be uh, essentially just a single continuous exercise session at either a fixed or variable intensity. Again, you're probably going to pick an intensity that is at or slightly below the VO2 max. Uh, another alternative that's equally effective and is ironically also considered to be continuous training is breaking a continuous session into two or three blocks. And uh, the data that supports that this is effective is what's um, been largely used to make the argument that if you don't have time to do 60 minutes of aerobic exercise in one sitting, you could do 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the afternoon and get the same effect. And that's the same sort of thing here. It doesn't really matter whether or not if you do those two or three blocks, it doesn't matter if they're all together as long as they're all done. And essentially, 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon, that's going to translate to the same caloric expenditure. So it's about caloric expenditure. It's not about uh, how exactly you structure the exercise. The, the other key point, uh, which was similar with the interval response, is the intensity. It's very important that the intensity be set at or slightly below the crossover point. And anytime you do that, that provides the greatest stimulus for adaptations in the aerobic system while minimizing adaptations in the anaerobic system. All right, so this is a little bit about, uh, we've talked a little bit now about some of the things that contribute to changes in VO2 max, uh, and we've talked about how it affects uh, macronutrient utilization. We've talked about some different considerations for program design. So one of the uh, things we'll kind of finish up with today is looking at the lactate threshold a bit more. The last time we talked about the lactate threshold, we uh, essentially talked about why it occurs. And uh, one thing we know about the lactate threshold is a very powerful predictor of performance capacity. Uh, and essentially an individual with a high lactate threshold, in most cases they're going to be a good aerobic performer. And uh, it's even a more powerful predictor than the VO2 max. So if you have a high VO2 max and a low lactate threshold, you're probably not going to be very good at an, as an aerobic performer. And if you have a lower, lacta, a lower VO2 max but a very high lactate threshold, that's probably mean you're going to be very effective at what you're doing because you can utilize those aerobic energy systems for a longer period of time to a higher intensity of exercise without having to rely on anaerobic energy systems. Uh, as I said just a second ago, um, if we look at all the measurements that we can make in the lab, the lactate threshold is the only measurement that is directly correlated to athletic performance. 
Um, in general, if you're trying to change the lactate threshold, it's probably going to take you about 6 to 12 months to elicit some change in the lactate threshold. There's a lot of individual variation in what this response is, but most individuals that are well-trained already, if they're con continuing to do training for their event, they're either doing one of two things. They're either trying to actively maintain what they've got, or they're trying to further increase the lactate threshold and shift it further to the right. Because they could really, for most cases, care less what their VO2 max is. They're more interested in what their lactate threshold is. Um, so, I mean, we see this all the time. We have uh, athletes come in and uh, we'll test them. We'll get their VO2 max. We'll see that their VO2 max is about 80 milliliters per kilogram per minute, which is extremely high. And then we'll ask them how they perform, and they're like one of the worst riders on their team. Um, or we'll have somebody come in that doesn't really seem to have an overly high VO2 max, and then we'll look at their lactate threshold, and their lactate threshold will be at like 90% of their VO2 max. And uh, without asking, uh, you can usually look at them and say, I bet you're a pretty good rider, aren't you? Yep, I'm number one in my group. And that's, that's what it all comes down to. So if you're looking at training an, athlete, an aerobic athlete, that's what you're trying to do. You're not really caring so much about aerobic capacity. What you want to alter is that point at which the lactate threshold occurs. The other thing you want to alter is the point at which the crossover point occurs. The, uh, the thing that's uh, interesting is if you look at the pace that individuals would select to run at, the typical race pace is usually very close to the lactate threshold which that effectively tells us the further the lactate threshold goes to the right, the faster that you can run in your event. That effectively means that you would finish your event quicker and with a better performance. And that effectively means that somebody who has trained themselves to increase their lactate threshold or shift that threshold to the right, they are always going to perform better because they can run faster. They can run at a faster pace or cycle at a faster pace. The other thing that we see is if we look at a given, if we compare a trained and an untrained individual and we look at their lactate levels at a given exercise intensity, the trained individual will always have a lower lactate value at a given exercise intensity. And again, that's a hallmark sign of the fact that the threshold is shifted to the right. And we'll look at what that looks like in just a moment. So, any questions about what's, what I've said so far with lactate threshold? All right, so this graph, uh, as I put it up here, you probably, well, hopefully no one gets scared, but um, I was hoping nobody gets the shakes or something when I put this up. But we've looked at this before. On the y-axis, uh, we have percentage of increase. On the x-axis, we have maximal sprint duration in seconds. And in an untrained individual, this is what we've looked at before with the lactate threshold. So in an ideal situation, you would see this uh, gradual increase in lactate and then an immediate nonlinear increase in lactate. And that point where there's a nonlinear increase, that's what we call the lactate threshold or the break point. And what you see in the trained individual is in the trained individual, the lactate threshold shifts to the right, meaning that now they can run at a higher intensity 
prior to having to utilize anaerobic energy systems to provide ATP. And the reason that is is because their system is more efficient at using glycogen to make ATP. It has more machinery to make ATP from glycogen and thus can make ATP more rapidly. And the key to being able to exercise at a higher intensity is you have to provide ATP at the rate it's being used. And anytime you do that with, um, you can do it with aerobic energy systems, you don't have to use anaerobic energy systems. Despite that, you will always get to a point where no matter how well you train the aerobic energy systems, they won't be able to provide the energy the body needs. And at that point, you're always going to elicit the anaerobic response, which will be a hallmark of the lactate threshold. So the two uh, little spots here, those in indicate the two positions, the lactate threshold and the fact that it's just shifted to the right. So if we look at uh, some, that's mostly uh, looking at aerobic adaptations. So if we look at uh, anaerobic adaptations a bit more, one of the real problems with looking at anaerobic capacity is that unlike aerobic capacity, there's not really a standardized test that you could use to measure anaerobic capacity. So if you want to measure aerobic capacity, no problem. You do a VO2 max test. We take you to the lab. We ask you if you're a runner or a cyclist. If you're a cyclist, we put you on the bike, and we basically have you ride until you can't ride any longer. And when you feel like you can't ride any longer, then we encourage you to ride longer. Um, and that would be the VO2 max or the VO2 peak. The, uh, with anaerobic training, you really can't do that. There's not really a one standardized marker. There are different uh, labs around the country that look at uh, anaerobic training responses, and they all seem to use just about a little bit different measurement. One uh, pretty popular test for anaerobic power is something called the Wingate Threshold Test. I think I've talked about the Wingate Threshold Test before. This is a delightful test to do. Um, you essentially uh, you get on the bike, and you take your body weight in kilograms. You multiply it by 10%. You load that weight onto the bike, you raise the weight so it's not on the flywheel, you tell the person to pedal as fast as they can, you drop the weight, and they ride until they can't turn the cranks anymore. And at 10% of your body weight, that usually occurs in about 30 seconds. Uh, with the last five seconds, the individual will barely be turning the cranks. And uh, essentially, you just look at the amount of wattage the individual pushes during that test. And the faster they can keep those cranks going, the more wattage they'll produce, which is a direct index of anaerobic capacity. The other thing you get during a Wingate threshold test is you get massive activation of anaerobic energy systems, which means massive increases in blood lactate concentration. And essentially, if you measure blood lactate about three minutes after the completion of a Wingate threshold test, you can very easily get the lactate threshold or the lactate value up to about 20 millimolar, which is effectively about 20 times resting values. And that has all kinds of nice effects. So if you haven't ever done one of these tests before, it uh, well, if you've done one of these before, I guarantee you'd remember it um, because it's a very memorable experience. And um, I pretty much have the same response every time I do it. And I've done it about six or eight times. And I know what's going to happen before I even do it. That's when you know you're really messed up in the head. Um, and that response, is, for me, is essentially uh, I'm going to start to feel lightheaded immediately. I'm going to feel like I'm going to puke, and then I'm going to pass out. 
and um, everybody's response is a little bit different, and that's really dictated by that lactate concentration and how well your body tolerates it. But it, that's a pretty popular test um, to do. Uh, obviously, for the side effects associated with it, it's always an, it's not always an ideal test. Um, I remember when I was working on my PhD, um, some of the assistant football coaches came to us asking us to do this test on the, some of the football players. They wanted to do the whole team, actually. They wanted to do the whole team during their off-season training. So we scheduled everybody for appointments. Three people did it, and they said they weren't going to do any more of those because the three people that did it didn't follow our directions and one guy ate like an hour before he came in and we got to see everything that he ate and uh, just a variety of responses so um, basically we opted for other measurements. Another type of test uh, is something we call a critical power test and it's essentially uh, the the basic, basic definition of it is that you would load up the bike with a certain amount of wattage and you would look at how long the person could essentially continue to pedal at that wattage at a certain cadence. And the longer they can go, that translates to a better anaerobic capacity. A uh, third type of test is something called a maxim maximal accumulated oxygen deficit test or MAOD test. And it's another test that actually, um, essentially what you do is you have the person come into the lab and you have them exercise, you measure their oxygen consumption and you have them exercise at an intensity which elicits um, about 20 at about 20% of VO2 max, 40, 60, 80% of VO2 max, you record the oxygen consumption. And then you extrapolate out and you figure out what intensity you'd have to ride at to elicit 140% of the maximal oxygen consumption. You have them come back on a separate day, you load the bike or treadmill with that intensity, and you have them go till they can't go anymore. And if you've chosen the intensity correctly, that 140%, uh, they will be riding or running for no more than two minutes. And during that time, you can measure oxygen consumption. Well, obviously, at that intensity of exercise, the body needs a lot more energy, a lot more ATP than is only coming from aerobic energy systems. And since you can measure, since you'll know how much energy the body needs, you can calculate that based on the workload. And you can measure the aerobic contribution. You can essentially subtract the aerobic contribution from the total amount required, and that quantifies the anaerobic contribution. And the higher that anaerobic contribution, the more anaerobic capacity you have. When you look at anaerobic adaptations, uh, you know, previously when we talked about the aerobic adaptations, we were talking about the mitochondria, but uh, the anaerobic adaptations are a bit different. And if you look at types of muscle fibers, the primary muscle fiber affected is the fast twitch muscle fibers, and more importantly, the intermediate fibers, the, the trainable fibers. And if you had somebody that trained aerobically and then you switched them and had them train anaerobically, those, uh, the fibers that would cause the immediate change would be related to the intermediate fibers because they would immediately start shifting over to uh, anaerobic nature. The key adaptations that occur in response to anaerobic training is an increase in anaerobic power using whatever test it is you deem appropriate. 
the Wingate threshold test is pretty much the classic test, but uh, given the side effects associated with it, it's not always the preferred test. And a second adaptation is an increase in anaerobic capacity. So essentially anaerobic power, an increase in anaerobic power would be the ability to produce a large amount of uh, anaerobic movement in a short period of time. Anaerobic capacity would be the ability to maintain anaerobic energy production against a fixed stimulus for an extended period of time. So a little bit different type of measures, but uh, they get at the same kind of response. A third effect which occurs in response to anaerobic changes is an increase in buffering capacity. So obviously if you're doing a lot of anaerobic training, you're going to be producing a lot of lactic acid and the body essentially gets better at buffering that lactic acid into carbon dioxide so it can be expelled. This, uh, this graph uh, shows percent of increase on the y-axis and the maximal sprinting duration on the x-axis, 5, 10, 20, 40 seconds. And what you find is that essentially when you have the maximal sprinting duration in excess of 20 seconds, that is when uh, you're going to get some large uh, activation and adaptation of both energy systems. If your sprinting durations are much shorter, then you tend to get less adaptation. And that's, again, all taking into account the relative intensity and uh, accounting that back to the duration. We'll look at that a bit more in just a moment. So if we look at the buffering capacity response, there's two key buffers that we're interested in, one of which we've already talked about, the other one we did not talk about. Uh, but there's essentially two ways that lactic acid is buffered. It can be buffered in the blood via the bicarbonate system, which we talked about. But the, what we didn't talk about is how it can be buffered in the muscle via muscle phosphates. It's raining very hard outside. I didn't bring an umbrella. Uh, that's okay, I'll just keep talking. Um, so essentially, when we talk about improving buffering capacity, we're either going to be altering a combination, really, of bicarbonates in the blood and phosphates in the muscle. Uh, muscle buffering capacity can increase up to 50% after eight weeks of anaerobic training. And again, with a note on up to 50%, because the amount of actual increase you'll see is largely dependent on how untrained you are when you start. And essentially, the buffering capacity will attenuate fatigue because it maintains a low concentration of hydrogen ions. And uh, definitely the maintenance of a low concentration of hydrogen ions is very important because hydrogen ions will reduce the pH of the muscle cell. And if you decrease them to a sufficient amount, that will actually interfere with muscle contractile ability. The, uh, some of the final responses we'll look at today is how training influences uh, muscle fatigue. 
and on the y-axis we'll have uh, the response, the particular response we'll look at, and on the x-axis we'll have exercise duration. And we've talked about this before, and uh, when we talked about um, anaerobic muscle fatigue, the primary cause of the drop in muscle force during anaerobic type of exercise is a substantial increase in inorganic phosphate concentration and hydrogen ion concentration. And when these increase a lot, you tend to have muscle fatigue occurring because they affect the contractile mechanisms of the muscle. Well, one of the things that we know about um, anaerobic training is it offsets the increase in inorganic phosphate and hydrogen ions. And it accomplishes that because it can reform ATP quicker and it has better buffering capacity to deal with the acid. And the net effect is that if you look at the fatigue response in anaerobic exercise, it occurs in a, in a more delayed fashion than it does prior to training. So that's certainly a, a positive training improvement. So then the key effect is that by delaying the increase in inorganic phosphate and hydrogen ion, you get a maintenance of muscle force production. <laughs>